Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. It's Afmal Hotra here on Straight Talk. What a pleasure to have you all back and listening to our powerful, compelling episodes. We're 30,000 subscribers strong now, and today we'll just elevate and boost that number, no doubt, because of my guest. I have a, a wonderful entrepreneur, an impact entrepreneur, a CEO, a former CEO, a chair, a great thinker, and someone who is making a material impact on the betterment of society and humanity. And uh, when I first came across his work in a, a small place called Hubli, that many of you wouldn't have heard of, which is about an hour away from uh, Bengaluru or Bangalore in India. And I got immersed in the work that this gentleman's foundation is doing there. It's changed my entire perspective over the last six months on uh, how innovation can be done with social impact being the core of it, and how money is not necessarily always a correlator. There are people who are making impact happen and meaning happen right now who come from challenged backgrounds and uh, um, are not privileged as many of us are, and how the whole agricultural revolution out of India is potentially the next big tech disruption um, you know, phenomena that we may end up seeing. So there's loads more here. I'd like to welcome the wonderful author and uh, CEO, chairman, thinker, uh, Desh Deshpande, um, to my show. Desh, welcome to Straight Talk. Thank you. Thank you, Af. It's wonderful to have you on the show. I got captivated initially by this book, and I'm sure it is available uh, through various uh, sources, on entrepreneurship and impact, Desh Deshpande. And it's a tiny book, actually. It's a tiny book in the grand scheme of things, as opposed to the big fat 500 page books these days. But I have to tell you in just a few words, and I don't know how many words, and um, I would say, you know, give or take uh, about a hundred pages, this book encapsulates everything you really need to know in, in, it, in a very simple yet compelling way about entrepreneurship. I do think it's very powerful. It's a bit of a playbook, I would say. And to some extent, it's one of those books you can reread again and again. You know, your bedside, you've had a tough day as an entrepreneur, you pick it up. Uh, I just went through two, three chapters again in prep, in prep for this conversation. I read it twice. And it reminded me of why I'm doing what I'm doing from a social impact standpoint as well. So, Desh, I have so much to ask you today. Firstly, uh, your demeanor and your approach towards social impact has been inspiring for so many. Uh, and there's a journey. There's a journey behind that. So the, the first part of this dialogue is about trying to unpack who is Desh uh, and your personal story. Tell us a little bit about this sort of whistle-stop tour of your journey to now, today, and what, what's been going on. And um, I'd love you to say it the way you wish. Sure, sure. So, you know, I was born in India and uh, middle-class family, uh, but uh, I was privileged. Uh, relatively speaking, even though when you compare the incomes, the incomes were very low and you still lived in the world of rations where you got 500 grams of sugar a month for the family and so on. But yeah. I was privileged because my parents were educated and they put a big stress on education and so on. So, yeah. uh, so and then, you know, fortunately I went to, uh, I got, had good education I went to IIT those days. It wasn't that well known, but mm. it was a fantastic place. Um, and then happened to come to Canada. Uh, and then I did my master's and a PhD. Uh, and then worked for Motorola, uh, which got me into entrepreneurship. And then had an entrepreneurial journey for about 30 years or so, building many companies. 
Um, and then when I turned 50, uh, I sort of said, well, I don't want to be a CEO or an entrepreneur, but maybe create opportunities for other people to be CEO and entrepreneurs. Okay. And the initial focus was primarily for, again, high tech people, highly educated people, very talented people who could make a big change in the world through uh, their technological impacts. Mm-hmm. But slowly, our attention then turned to people who are being left behind, who are mm-hmm. not a part of that, the, the, the leading economy. And so for the last 15 years, our focus both in US, Canada, and India have been trying to figure out ways to make an impact on the people who are being left behind. Got it. Understood. And so... A couple of things, of course, I'm going to probe a little bit more. So you talked, uh, interestingly, about privilege at the beginning. And it's funny you say that because just yesterday I was recording another show with uh, Jennifer Brown, who is a well-known author in the diversity and inclusion space. And uh, she's a white woman. Okay. And so she started off the conversation by saying, before I start, I do need to make it clear just to dispel myths that, yes, I am a white woman and I am privileged in many ways. And she talks a lot about, at the end of the whole episode, we talked a lot about how there's earned and unearned privilege. And sometimes it's very important to lay that out because the opportunities that come your way are a direct, you know, relator to your foundation block. And some people who are not as privileged have to take a different journey. It may be more arduous. It's tougher. Maybe they uh, don't have a route to get into Canada. And therefore, if you're not in Canada, those opportunities wouldn't have come your way if you were in another part of the world and so on. Um, but it feels like you seize those opportunities. I mean, sometimes they happen uh, because there was this grand plan. Um, but actually, as you talk about what's in your control and out of your control, actually what's in your control is is about this big. And there's a lot of things that are out of your control, as you say in your book and, and in your on your speeches. So as you navigate and you, as you finished your PhD, I know you fell into sort of the corporate world and then you and your wife, uh, Jayshree, decided to do your own thing. That's when you started your entrepreneurial journey. So tell us a little bit more about uh, what was going on in your mind, both of you, actually, if, if I may, as a couple. And I know you had a couple of young children as well. So what was going on in your mind at that point as to... Um, what compelled you to come out of something that was maybe more comfortable, less risky, and then say, no, we're just going to, we're going to do our own thing. What was going on then? Yeah. So, you know, a lot of this is in, at least in my case, yeah, was, was accidental. And in some ways, uh, you know, things that you come across, it's not like I was born and I knew anything about business or, you know, sometimes some, some people are born and they, just want to be musicians and they train all their life to be the best musicians and excel in what they want to do. That was not my case. Mm. You know, I think I came through a very middle-class safe family where there was no business or anything like that. And so things, the windows open and I saw opportunities. I saw different things and all of them happened mostly because of chance. You know, it's only, uh, I went to IIT Madras mostly because it's not like my parents knew about IIT Madras or I knew about IIT Madras. A colleague of my father said, hey, you know, if he gets into IIT Madras, that's very hard. If he has gotten in, he should go. And that's mm. how I landed up there. And then I came to Canada for, for by a similar accident. And then 
got my master's and then taught for a year because my professor went to Australia on sabbatical. So I became a professor accidentally again. Wow. And then I got PhD because I wanted to be a professor. And then I started working for Motorola in uh, Toronto uh, because of another person that I had met when I was doing my PhD, Dr. Peter Brackett. Mm. Uh, he was head of engineering of a little startup in Toronto. And the company those days uh, had fantastic technology that invented how to do 9,600 bits per second on a phone line when the yeah. state of the art was about 300 bits per second. Wow. Okay. And, and But unfortunately, the company wasn't doing well, so it, it was really going through a lot of trouble. So he quit his job and came to teach at Queen's University where I was doing my PhD. So I got to be friends with Peter. And Motorola came and bought that struggling company in, mm -hmm. in 1979. And within and, and they hired Peter to be head of engineering again. Mm. And then within three months after Peter left, I finished my PhD. So Peter called me up and said, hey, forget about being a professor. Why don't you just come here? Mm. Just because I knew Peter, um, I decided to just go join uh, Toronto. And that's when I and Jayshree also got married. And then over the next four years, uh, we had quite a run. We went from 20 people to 400 people, $100 million, very profitable business. Mm. And there were three of us, Peter and the CEO, Ted Strain and myself, who actually built that whole business. And so in 84, when I and Jayshree looked back, we said, hey, you know, if we can do this for Motorola, we can do this for ourselves. Sure, yeah. And, and the only place which had any concept of venture capital at that time were Boston and Silicon Valley. So that's why we moved to Boston as an intercompany transfer, working still for Motorola in Boston. Right. And, and that got the entrepreneurial journey started. So, so you can see that uh, serendipity played a big role in, in everything I've done. Mm. Every four or five years, you know, you come across a different situation and different sets of people, different ideas, and then you pursue those. Mm, mm. To some extent, it's interesting. So you say you you didn't have a business background because you were you were teaching, and you ended up in a start well startup, and you had these two other people working alongside you. So it's it's quite phenomenal to hear that for this new generation of entrepreneur, right? Um, and of course, time times different times. You know that was in the in the late seventies, early eighties. Now it's a different time, but it's amazing. What I love about what you just said is this concept of experimental. Um, life, naivety, even some level of ignorance, sometimes it's better not to know because then you just literally learn on the job, you know, as opposed to going in with a blueprint. Um, and I wanted to, I wanted to ask you just deviating because this conversation will meander that state. And we've described that entrepreneur as a persona in the, in the late seventies, eighties to the, the entrepreneur today. Um, I don't know if I, I'm making a gross generalization, but I'm sure you were stressed then too. I'm sure you had responsibilities. Not, then not too. really, no. no. I mean, my whole life has been uh, one pleasant journey. Right. Because I've always done things that I wanted to do. Got it. Yeah. When you're doing things that you want to do, it doesn't really matter whether things work or don't work. You're just so fortunate. Hmm. And I and my wife, my wife also went to IIT Madras, which is, uh, you know, like it's like going to MIT or Harvard in the US. Sure. So we always felt comfortable that we'll never starve. We'll always get a breakfast and, and lunch. We, we can always earn that much. Yeah. 
And yeah. so then what else is there in life? You know, mm. you might have to spend yeah. your life doing things that you really enjoy doing and want to do. Yeah. And so even when we were struggling with starting companies and everything else, even though all our friends and, and family felt pity for us, we never felt that way. Mm. We felt that, hey, we're doing what we want to do. Mm. So if you get to do what you want to do, then the other things don't matter really. Mm. So, so don't feel like we were sacrificing anything. And that part of it, I think, does not really change for individuals even now, whether you're right. young or not young. As long as you're not trying to do things, keeping up with the Joneses and mm. doing it for the sake of other people, either to make quick money or quick fame or something like that. You know, in mm. some cases, it does work out, one in a million case. But in most of the cases, people become miserable. Because they're not really doing things that they really want to do, genuinely want to do. Mm. So being genuine about what you want to do is a key thing. Mm. And then it's a question of, you know, how much can you meander from your own comfort zone? Correct. And that, I think, depends a little bit on your upbringing, too. You know, in my case, my father was a government servant and he got transferred a lot. So we went to good schools. But also we went to, uh, we were in a little village for four years. So I went to schools where very few people even got their high school degrees. So it was not a, a fantastic place. Uh, but so going through a lot of these different places uh, sort of makes you feel a lot more comfortable with mm. diversity and uh, adversity and things that you have. Mm. And I think it really gives you an opportunity to find things that you really want to do. And, and that makes you a little bit more comfortable. Mm. And then it's a, it's, a, it's a vicious cycle in some ways, because the more comfortable you are, um, you know, going away from your comfort zone, uh, the more difficult situations you come across. And every difficult situation broadens your comfort zone. Correct. And so you start feeling more and more and more comfortable with uncertainty and ambiguity in life. Yeah. And, and, and that really, uh, I think, is the biggest gift you can have in life. Yeah, you're bang on. I talk a lot about this, uh, this mantra in my life through different ups and downs. Mostly trauma teaches you more. Failure teaches you much more than success, as you know. And uh, my ter the term I use is make friends with uncertainty. And there are many ways to do it, of course, but uh, you've summed it up. Uh, the other thing I wanted to understand really was throughout this journey that you've been on, you know, we talk a lot about what are you good at? You know, of course, what do you enjoy doing is important, but what are you good at? What are your strengths? What are the things you feel like you can make a contribution on? At what stage did you start to feel like, I think I'm getting, I think I feel like, yeah, I think I'm starting to figure out what my zone is. At what stage did you start to feel like, yeah, this is my zone. I'm good at it. I enjoy doing it. I want to do more of it. Uh, probably throughout the life, but, but it's been different things. You know, mm -hmm. when I was a kid, I, I enjoyed doing the schoolwork, you know, math and everything else. Engineering, I enjoyed. Professorship, I enjoyed. And then I became an entrepreneur. I enjoyed that. And now, of course, I'm doing social impact. I'm enjoying that. But, but if you'd asked me 15 years ago, uh, oh, would you want to work in social entrepreneurship? I would have said, what is social entrepreneurship, right? Right. And, and so I think it's, it's uh, what I really enjoy is, is sort of taking on something and, and doing a good job at it, but then also have the ability to walk away from it right. and do something totally different mm. and not hanging on to the past too much. 
Mm. You know, so a lot of my colleagues, I find that people who have been successful, every time you talk to them, that they always want to talk about the company they built, even though it's 20 years ago, conversation always goes back to the past somehow. Mm. And, and I've been very fortunate in terms of, you know, climbing a hill, becoming somewhat of a king of a hill, but then also the ability to just walk away and start from the bottom of the ladder somewhere else and figuring that out and, and really having a lot of that fun. Mm. Where do you, where, what do you think the source of that is? Um, have you figured out what the source, were you just born that way? Well, or I, you... I think it's very simple. It's, it's just, you know, I think it doesn't matter how much you accomplish or how great you are at anything. Anything that you do for a long time becomes a chore. And, and, and you're not that excited anymore, getting up in the morning and doing that same thing. And when that happens, most of the people, you know, it's like being stuck on a trapeze and you want to jump onto another trapeze, mm. but you're very afraid that you may fall down. You know, and that fear, once you get over that fear, mm. you find that, you know, if you actually walk away, you'll always find the next opportunity. And so it's almost like, it's not like the next opportunity gets lined up and then you let go where you are. Correct. Yeah. So as soon as you realize that you're not enjoying what you're doing, I think my philosophy, and, and you probably read that in the book, is to just walk away from it for two reasons. Number one, it's not that exciting for you anymore. And secondly, it's tremendously exciting for somebody else. <laughs> yeah. Probably do a fantastic job of, mm. of doing that thing. And so, you know, let's say if you're good in sales, people want to just keep recruiting you for sales and they'll give you even more money. And you say, no, no, but I don't want to do sales. I'm going to do something else, but don't let you do it. Right. Mm. So you almost have to walk away from it. If you're really serious about the fact that you want to do something else. Mm. So reinventing yourself is, is a, is an idea, you know, lifelong learning, reinventing, these are not just idealistic ideas. You know, they're the ones who re that really keep you alive. You know, you, you know, if you can get up in the morning and be excited about the day, I think life is done. And if you can live every day of your life like that, that's yeah. all there is to life. There's nothing else. Yeah. But you cannot do that. doesn't matter how successful you are or how rich you are. You cannot buy enough insurance to happily live ever after. You have to be risking things every day because that's what gets the excitement going. You have to be experiencing mm. new things, new ideas, new people. And, and I think, I think if, if you really get a taste of it, it, it all just happens naturally. It's not like you're giving up anything. You're mm. doing it because that's what you want to do. Mm, mm, it's beautifully put. And um, one of, it resonates with me to a large degree because, of course, as as an entrepreneur, the journey of an entrepreneur, quite interestingly, and I've had many on the show, is uh, is such such a different experience because it forces you to do many things that you wouldn't ordinarily do because of the things you've described. It's not chore-driven, it's experimental, it's risky, it's accidental, it's inventive, all of the words you can think of. And it is a huge learning experience. But it's funny because you talked about this earlier. If I even now, um, and maybe I, I ask you the question, uh, in a second, there are a lot of people out there, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going into another pathway. But a lot of people out there, as you talk about entrepreneurship, doing what you love to do, um, cut cutting ties and saying no, and not getting buried in the past, good or bad, thinking, you know, constantly thinking ahead. I love that attitude. 
it feels quite it feels quite sort of you feel light as a person when you live with those values and ideals right at the end of the day these days entrepreneurship has a very different meaning for many people around the world of course it's now a trend um and it's a regular occurrence where even people in corporations have an imagination that oh my god if i become an entrepreneur i'll be free and i'll be rich and i do have that a lot you know a lot of my friends from the corporate day say oh my god it's amazing what you're doing i see it on social media and so on so i'm thinking uh, i've got this idea you know what do you think i think i'm just going to become an entrepreneur i'm like i hold my head in my hands and say really they're like oh yeah absolutely so and i answer them in a particular way tell us what you who do, who is ready to be an entrepreneur do you think everyone should is ever is everyone fit for an entrepreneur um, existence? Or you've seen in your time? No, I can see. It. I don't think you're entrepreneur ready, mate. But I think you are. What sort of characteristics and traits do you look for? Very simple. If if somebody comes to you and says, "I have this fantastic idea. I want. Can I? Should I be an entrepreneur?" The answer is no. <laughs> you know, I think I think entrepreneurship it, it has to come from within you. You have mm -hmm. to have such a strong commitment to wanting to do it, that you're not doing it because somebody else is endorsing it. Mm. In fact, when you want to be an entrepreneur and want to do something different, all your friends, all your family will always ask you not to do it. And the reason for that is not because they don't like you or they don't want to see you successful, but they see all the troubles you can get into. And an entrepreneurship, unfortunately, has only three news. It'll always take longer than you think. It'll take more money. And it's more difficult than you think. Sure. And so there's only bad news. So if you start the journey because somebody else asked you to do it, the very first time you hit a roadblock, you'll give up and you're done. Correct. Yeah. And so for you to bulldoze through all the hurdles, and in fact, first time you get into trouble, all your well-wishers will come back to you and say, I told you, I told you so, right? Mm. And so uh, for you to actually still bulldoze through those issues and those hurdles and get through those things, it has to be something that comes from within you, you know? And, and what, what drives an entrepreneur, a good entrepreneur, is, is that mission. You know, you're, you're trying to say that world is A, I want it to be B, and you believe that B is better than A. And the stronger you believe in it, the more likely you will succeed. Even though you don't know how to get to B from A, you'll mm. figure it out. Mm. Mm. But you figure it out and you bulldoze through all the hurdles because you really believe that it's even though it's very hard, it's worth getting there. Mm. And, and so I think it's more when you fall into that you know, a, a love of solving some problem that you really believe in, then not too many people can stop you. Mm. And of course, I mean, to go from B to A, uh, there's a lot of techniques, there's a lot of tools that you can use. And those tools have become more and more sophisticated over the course of last 40 years since I started my first company. But the that commitment does not change. Mm. I'm with you. What um, what is also interesting is these events that happen in your life. So whilst I say your ideals stay the way they are, your attitude stays the way it is, the personality, the mindset, and so on, all of the stack of what makes you you stays consistent. There are certain life events that happen, 
right? Good and bad, good and bad, out of your control. Um, if you if you're open to it, I'd love to understand how, to whatever extent, for you or your partner, um, any of what you've just described now, because you're at a different stage of life now. Okay, you, you're able to connect the dots. You have this collective wisdom. You're able to see patterns at this stage of your life, but not, of course, everyone is at that stage. Um, what would you say to those who are on the same path as you, without question? They're like, I totally relate to Daesh. I'm there. I'm absolutely there. But things happen. Trauma happens. Let's say it's a loss of a person in your life. Like during COVID, we saw a lot of trauma around us and we all lost people directly or indirectly. Or something good, like a child. You have children. <laughs> that, that takes its toll too, because your attention now is not just you. It's it's diverted towards what you've got to, you know, you nurture and and uh, hone for the next generation. Walk us through, if, if you wouldn't mind, some examples of, maybe one example of something that you felt was traumatic and something that you thought was enigmatic, amazing, you know, e extravagant in your life um, and yeah. how that affected your journey. Yeah. No, you know, I think if I were to honestly dig deep, uh, I'm not sort of making it up, but I never have felt in my life that life has not been fair to me or, or hasn't been good to me. Always sort of feel like, hey, my life is so easy. I'm so blessed. Mm. And, and maybe it's the Indian philosophy and yep. maybe it's the way we were brought up because my parents are the same way. You know, it's every time, doesn't matter what the situation is, you mm. look at things and they will always interpret it as a positive thing. You know, there would be some accident, some relative, mm. he would have lost his leg and, and they'll say, oh, you know, how lucky he only mm. lost a leg. Yeah. Or, or somebody loses their life, they would say, well, you know, it's good that you didn't have to suffer. And so I think, I think somehow that ingrained in me and Jayashree, this philosophy that, you know, you don't really control too many things. Things just happen. So the only control you have is how you interpret it and how you experience it. And so, uh, so things don't really, you know, I don't really get that traumatic. I don't know if I've ever been traumatized by anything that's happened in life so far. Mm. And nor it's it's like big ecstasy when something happens either. Mm. You know, it, it's a it's always like a uh, things happen and then you just enjoy as you go along, mm. and and you don't react to them too much. Mm. And uh, and it's been the same ever since I was a little kid. I think you know I, I don't think I've gone through these big ups and downs that people talk about. Mm. And I'm very fortunate for, you know, having that mindset from very early days. So, so I think getting over the sphere of something going wrong is probably a biggest blessing anybody can have. Otherwise, you're constantly living in fear. Correct. Yeah. Whereas in reality, it doesn't matter how much you wish. Things are going to happen the way they're going to happen anyway. Because yeah. we all control such, such a small piece of this whole big machinery that's going on. Yeah. And, and so I think it's, it's mostly developing the ability to interpret things in a, in, a, in a positive way and not get paralyzed by the traumatic experiences. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's inter interesting you talk about the Indian philosophy, and I think that's playing a huge role, not just because both of us come from, our, you know, have origins in India, 
Uh, but even when I talk to non-Indians, people who are from other parts of the world, it's phenomenal to see how that philosophy has now, um, you know, penetrated a different ways of life. And the Western way of life is a, is a good example. Yoga being one of the first things. And then, of course, many, many other things are coming through. And how advanced that philosophy is in terms of well-being, very advanced philosophy in terms of well-being. You talked about, and it's fantastic insight, by the way. So thank you for that. And I, you know, a lot of this is going to be um, magical and in pieces of wisdom, actually, for many people who sometimes overcomplicate. I think we have a habit as human beings to try and overcomplicate things when actually sometimes they can be quite straightforward. Um, but have you, you know, in fact, when we wrote the book, yeah, it's not biographical, it's questions yeah. and answers. Yeah. And no answer is more than 50 to 75 words. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because I think I think life is simple. It's not hard. But even simple things are hard to do. And hard things are impossible to do. So don't make things hard. And, and some people feel very uncomfortable mm. feeling mm. like they're doing things that are simple. Some of mm. people go looking for complexity because they all want to feel like they're solving some very complex problems. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely right. I wanted to talk about something a little bit more and then I'll move uh, change gear, which is related to uh, disagreements and conflicts. And uh, why I say that is, again, I'm trying to bring in the reality of today's entrepreneurship ecosystem, which is big and it's getting bigger, as you know, very well. And so, and it's multi-generational now, you know, like you describe in the late 70s, 80s, you would have been of a certain age. Then at 50, you decided it was a different pathway. Now you have a varied distribution of young people, not so young people, boomers, Gen Alpha, Gen Z, the whole lot, playing in entrepreneurship, which is a good thing, good thing for entrepreneurship. At the same time, you also have different levels of human development. You know, your maturity levels are, are varied. And so we see quite a lot of conflict happening. I hear a lot about it because of the work that I do. You know, one person not getting along with another. Oh, my idea is destroyed. You know, he stole my idea. Uh, even cross-cultural issues, as for example, you work with someone in India, someone else is in the West, your ideals are different. You know, your value system is different to some extent. Tell us a little bit about conflict generally, how you look at and view conflict, whether through a personal story or otherwise. You know, I know you've got a pretty cool attitude generally, but I'd love to hear um, of how you think conflict can be managed realistically, pragmatically. Yeah. So whenever you have conflict, you know, you think A is right and the other person thinks B is right. Right. And and what is the reality? Uh, you probably won't know until it all gets played out anyway. But I think to the extent that you can, uh, you try to convince the other person, but A is a better way to go. Mm. Um, and, and you think through, and, and you have to be open to his ideas as to why he doesn't think A will work. Mm. Uh, but sometimes you can both agree and, and the disagreement goes away, mm. but sometimes mm. you cannot. Mm. And then it's a question of how big is that disagreement? If, if the disagreement is such that it jeopardizes where you're trying to get to, and then it's a question of how much control do you have over that mm -hmm. decision? Mm -hmm. If you can control the situation, then of mm -hmm. course you have the ability to decide on A and move mm -hmm. on, right? Mm -hmm. But if you don't control the situation, mm -hmm. then it's going to be B because the other person is the one who's going to make the call. And then what you don't want to do is to hang around there if you really think that that's not the way to go. Yeah, yeah. And that opportunity cost is what most of the people pay for. And, and having the guts to say, if I'm in an environment where I don't agree, 
to cut loose and find environments where you can get along and you can do things and is is a is a is probably a a bolder move that people have to learn how to make and as you get more and more senior of course you you control more and more of the decisions uh, but you still have to be sensitive you know as you get older and you have more control you have to be you have to make sure that you're not pushing your ideas too hard because mm. now uh, you know you do have majority vote in most of the decisions so you don't want to be pushing decisions you just want to be seeding ideas mm. see what other people think mm. so uh, so in my first company that we started after a lot of hardship four months after we got funded you know i and my partner could agree on how to go and he was definitely you know i was a young immigrant and he was a well established professional and he was a more senior person so mm-hmm. obviously he had the call so i decided to leave four months after we got funded which was mm-hmm. a hard decision mm-hmm. but in hindsight that turned out to be one of the best decisions i made because it yeah. gave me an opportunity to start another company and then move on so i think if there is a conflict you try to resolve the conflict but if you cannot resolve it and if you think that it's not like a small conflict as something that jeopardizes the whole situation mm-hmm. you don't want to be sitting there and saying i told you so i told you so because even if there is some chance that that idea b may work it will mm-hmm. not work now because you're a negative force there mm-hmm. and so you're neither nice. helping your partner not helping yourself yeah it's a great great advice very very insightful i can relate to a lot of it actually um you talked about immig- you used the word immigrant earlier on which is interesting and i just wanted to touch on this as well before we go into deshpande foundation because i'm very intrigued uh, the world needs to understand what you've done there so diversity economics which is the institution i've set up and diversity and inclusion as as a topic is of course super hot and it's an important thing to do for sure and you can i'm sure you understand that first hand given your journey in a western country or be it in a country that has promises merit and, and is the home of capitalism or the mecca of capitalism it's a fair play i mean i'm in the uk in london i'm sure we can have many conversations about the differences uh, t- talk me through um, how you see diversity and inclusion and i want to add a slight complexity to this question not you know uh, not because i'm trying to be difficult but i think it's important which is you know india and you know the east at least india and the east i'm not going into china or any other parts of the world and then you know the west you know mostly america as well it would be good to know a what is diversity and inclusion for you how do you describe it and see it in your mind as a leader as an individual and then how do you see it being the same or different in these two countries i'm really intrigued by that how is it playing itself out um so your initial reactions would be amazing i'd love to get your view on that yeah so you know i think it's always a good thing to have people who have different views at the table right i mean that's what out of box thinking is all about out of box thinking comes very naturally for people who don't belong to the 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 controlling group mm-hmm. so diversity is very important but the message that i usually try to give to people is that either you are in the process of building an ecosystem you know either a government policy holder or or some senior person who can control the whole environment in a organization or whatever in that case you need to build and constantly work on building an ecosystem where everybody is included right mm-hmm. diversity is worshiped mm-hmm. but if you are a person who is not included 
you shouldn't get hung up on that part of it. Because if you do, then you start feeling like the whole world is unfair and you get stuck and you get paralyzed. You have to have a mindset that says, okay, I, you know, I may not have equal opportunities, but I don't, I'm not looking for equal opportunities. I don't want to be winning a race by uh, a few inches. I want to win the race by a mile. Mm -hmm. So that there's absolutely no question as to who, who is number one. Correct. And yes. So uh, having that motivation to actually uh, prove yourself and, and, and get through all the hassles that you come along the way. Mm. And there's a lot of joy in it. You mm. know, every time you, you face a problem and you solve the problem, it's, it's fantastic. Mm. And so I think it's, it's two different messages for the people, people who are setting up ecosystems or setting the, have the opportunity to set up a culture in an organization. They definitely should, should strive hard to make sure that everybody's included. But if you're the individual who feels excluded, uh, you can't, make that thing paralyze your actions. Mm -hmm. Do you see it playing out differently in India? Uh, I mean, I, what you say is, is uh, logical, of course, and, and consistent and makes sense. The nuances, though, surely in different countries are different based on your status. Yeah. You're an immigrant so, so in, in the US, you know, you know yeah. because of the capitalism. Yeah. Um, the, uh, if, if you meritocracy and if you actually are able to contribute, to the top line, bottom line, mm. you get recognized very easily. Yeah. Uh, but uh, in India, it's slowly getting that way. But, you know, historically, it's not been that way. You know, the, there are people who are subjected to certain uh, jobs and that's what they're supposed to do and so on. But it's changing very rapidly because mm. the, the private sector economy is growing. Uh, but there's a human element to all of this too, to making sure that everybody feels welcome and included and so on. Mm. And so sometimes the, the capitalism uh, does tend to exclude people who are not that productive or not that efficient. And so, so for example, in US, uh, you know, if you get, as you get older and as you're not a part of the economy, mm -hmm. uh, you're not included in anything. Whereas the Eastern cultures, you know, old age is worshipped. My dad Correct. is 98. He's probably not economically or the most productive guy or the guy <laughs> contributing the most wealth in the family. But mm. nothing happens in the family without he being consulted. Mm. So, so that's a good part of the Eastern culture, I think, where mm. people uh, do include uh, older people and and uh, that human element, I think, is, is, is something that uh, we, we really should maintain and worship. Mm. That it's, it's sort of the collectivism mindset versus the individualism mindset that we see more so in the West, um, which both have their pros and cons, of course, based on wherever we end up going uh, as, as a civilization. So that's interesting. So thank you for that. Now let's come to, as we coming nearing, nearing the end of the show, but it's so important. This is the best part really actually is um, this whole concept of entrepreneurship and impact. I know you talk about this extensively and have done for many, many, many years. You went out there and you actually hit the road and you uh, turned, turned on, you know, the engine and start fire, fired on all cylinders before there was electric. I have to come up with some EV example in the future because we're so buried in the old combustion engine examples. 
But, you know, you went all guns blazing and you set up Deshpande Foundation that I have experienced and I've been and seen the campus and met the people and so on. Phenomenal, really. And so tell us about the the thought process with you and Jayshree. When did you, you said 50, when did you, why did you decide to do it and how did it all sort of come about? Um, tell us, give us a bit of a glimpse of it and then a little bit more about what you plan to do in the future. I'd love to know. Yeah, so, you know, I think the way to look at the world is that yeah. there's 7 billion people in the world, maybe 8. eight yeah. about 2 billion people have disposable income, 5 billion don't have disposable income. Mm. And making a difference in the lives of those two groups of people is what everything is about. Entrepreneurship, social entrepreneurship, foundations, universities, governments. Mm. And so, uh, and, and when you make a difference in the lives of the people who have disposable income, Mm. Uh, you have to compete for the opportunity. So you have right. to bring something new. Otherwise, they won't give you an opportunity to yeah. make a difference. Yeah. So innovation becomes very important. Mm. And that innovation has to meet relevance. It has to be directed to some burning problem people have. And if you do, you have a fantastic opportunity to create a company and make a difference in the lives of people. Got it. Yeah. And, and that's been our career. And so the initial part of the foundation work was to create more opportunities for people like that South, like who can make a difference for the 2 billion people. Got it, yeah. So I've been on the board of MIT for 22 years and we set up this Dishpande Center at MIT where instead of innovators innovating the whole thing and then looking for opportunities, the simple idea of connecting innovators to relevance as they innovate. And, and that turned out to be a very powerful concept. And within three years, this is 22 years ago when we started the center, Within three years, they proved that anything that went through the center at MIT was three times more likely to have an impact than otherwise. And then I, I used to co-chair a council for President Obama on innovation mm. entrepreneurship. So I worked with the National Science Foundation to take that idea and launch a program called I-Core, okay. which is a very um, big program in US now because uh, you know, MIT and Stanford don't need it as much, but all the Kansas and Ohio and Florida, all the universities and these smaller places, they need this program. Mm -hmm. And last year alone, a thousand companies came out of that. And then wow. we, uh, India is now spending a lot of money on research. So we are duplicating I-Core in India. It's a, it's a five-year effort so far. And it's, it's seeing equal amount of success in India. But a lot of that effort is, is really to make a difference in the lives of those 2 billion people who have disposable income. Hmm. About 15 years ago, we said, what can we do for the other 5 billion people? And the insight was that you cannot lead with innovation. The equation has to be relevance plus innovation is equal to impact. Meaning a lot of these people are just struggling to get through the day. So you have to co-create the solution with them because you don't really live like them. So, you know, you coming up with a product for them doesn't make any sense. Right. So you have to co-create the solution with them. You have to build capacity within those communities. And if you do find good, good ways to help them, then you can bring in all the innovation from the other parts of the economy to scale those solutions like technology, strategic planning, project management, financial engineering, all those things to scale the solutions, but you can't, that cannot be your starting point. Right, right. So that was the insight. And, and to implement that idea, we started this uh, social innovation sandbox in Hubli 15 years ago. And we started a similar program in US. Mm -hmm. And both the programs are now beginning to see, it's, it's been a long effort, 15 years, 
and a lot of investment. But they're both seeing uh, signs of uh, really proving themselves. You know, in US, for example, we have 1,100 companies. 75% of them are led by women. Wow. 50% of these women were previously unemployed. And, and right now we are on a path to have 50,000 companies by 2030. Wow. And these are all like little companies where people yeah. have five people, 10 people and so on. Yeah. And this program is called E4All, Entrepreneurship for All. So anybody interested can go to eforall.org and they can yeah. get a feel for the type of entrepreneurship that these people are practicing. Wow. In India, um, you know, we work with farmers and students and so on. And so uh, for farmers, it's essentially increasing the income. Mm -hmm. And the biggest multiplier of income is water in agriculture. So we do these farm ponds. You dig a hole that's 100 feet by 100 feet by 12 feet. Mm -hmm. And that's enough rainwater to irrigate five acres of land and double and triple the income. Mm -hmm. and, and so we are right now building 100,000 of them. And, and we've gotten to the point where uh, the farmer funds it totally. He, he comes up with 20% upfront up payment. Mm. The other 80% is funded by State Bank of India and HDFC banks. Mm. And, and we have a rural transmission technology center where we make the investment. And we also invest in staff to implement these programs. So that's the expense that comes from the Dishpande Foundation and the other donors. Mm. So the rural transmission technology center that you got to see in Hubli Mm. tracks 30 satellites, collects a petabyte of data every month, and given any piece of land, we can recreate the history of water for that land for the last 12 years. And so we can use that technology to ideally locate the farm pond within the farm. Mm -hmm. And then we use the same center to actually logistically build the farm ponds. For example, this year alone, we're building 8,000 of them. So there's about wow. 800 machines running around making these things. So it's a big logistics management uh, operation. Mm. And then once the farm pond is built, then we monitor the crop with the same technology center to make sure that the farmer is actually making more money and returning the loan so that he builds his credit in addition to the additional income. Mm. And so, so it's a similar approach for bridging, let's say, rural young men and women into employment. A lot of the young men and women in India, in rural India, they go to schools for 15 years, get college degrees, but none of them get jobs. Correct. And we yeah. have a program where we can whip them to shape and get them a job. And, and again, we use a lot of advanced technology there, like free classroom, content management, and, and a lot of those things. And we're really scaling it now. We've done 14,000 of these young men and women, and now we're scaling it to 100,000. So, so I think I think a lot of this is is very. So, what's the difference between what we're doing and what social sector has typically done? Mm. Social sector somehow does not believe. You know, I think you get you get people who are so compassionate about wanting to help people, they become more like social workers. They go to a village, maybe do everything they can to help the people who are most disadvantaged. And so they land up have helping maybe five people, 10 people, and their compassion is just unbelievable. And mm. we need those people too. Mm. But there's an opportunity to build interventions where you can scale them and almost guarantee the outcome. Because if you can guarantee the outcome, then the person you're trying to help can, to some extent, afford to pay for it. 
And, and I think people paying for what you do is a very powerful concept because it automatically builds a feedback loop. You know, I live in Boston, but I know when 8,000 farmers are lined up and they want to pay and wanting to get a farm pond, that doesn't matter what our group is doing in Hubli, I know mm. they're doing the right thing. Mm. Because if they don't do it right, those people are going to yell at and yeah. scream at these people. Yeah. So getting that feedback loop and having people become a part of the game, I think is a very important concept, but it, it requires a lot of discipline, a lot of investment to actually make sure that the intervention that you have yeah. is not a just a nice thing to do, but something where you guarantee the outcome. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. I mean, what, what amazing examples, it's inspiring for me to hear it. And it's got me thinking about my foundation slightly differently, in fact. Um, in terms, of especially the the positive side of scale. Scale doesn't always have to be, you know, it's it's been um, it's like a double-edged sword. Scale sometimes a lot of people think scale means destruction of value, and it means capitalism, uh, advanced capitalism. It can actually, in this context, you're making a real impact with scale. And uh, I love the, I've seen it work. I've actually, for the for listeners out there, I was there, I saw the physical demo of the satellites over the, the, the land and how those, you know, some of those ponds that were historically there have been rediscovered and new, new um, you know, prime land has been found. Uh, and uh, it's phenomenal. It really is. In terms of um, the work you're doing, I mean, it's, it's brilliant. And I'm sure you've heard this many times. So I don't need to keep doing that and compliment you. You know, you're making a difference. What stops more people doing this? Um, and, you know, you don't have to be a billionaire or multimillionaire. I want to get that clear to make a difference because I no, think- No, no, I, I think what's the difference is that, yeah. you see, the, the, that's the fundamental difference between for-profit and non-profit. In the for-profit, yeah. it doesn't matter how crazy your idea is, you have to find a sweet spot where somebody is willing to pay you money for it. Correct, yeah. And they have to pay you more than what it costs you. Otherwise, you go bankrupt. Mm -hmm. You're out of business or you get merged or you get bought or something like that. Mm -hmm. So there is a process of extinguishing non-performing assets in the for-profit world. So execution excellence is a must in the for-profit business. If you don't execute, you die. But sometimes in the process of chasing the execution, people lose their compassion for mm. people, for environment and so on. So you lack compassion in the for-profit world, but you have execution excellence. In the non-profit world, you have a huge amount of compassion, but you don't need execution excellence. That's why, you know, US and India and UK, we all have millions and millions of NGOs and 99.9% .9 of them are useless. <laughs> because they don't have critical mass, they don't have capability. You know, everybody wants to do something good. They start a new profit and then it just doesn't have the resources to actually mm. do anything. Mm. Mm. And, and so closing that loop where you can guarantee an outcome, that mm. requires a lot of investment. Mm. And people are not used to funding those kind of activities. You know, it's a lot easier to go to somebody and say, Hey, give me, uh, like I do Akshay Patra, yeah. where we do 2 million children every day, midday meals. It's very easy to go to people and say, give me $20 and I'll feed a child. And people say, okay, why don't you feed 10 or 100 or 1,000 or 10,000 and they'll give you money. Mm. But when you go to people and say, hey, give me a, some money so that I can develop a process to build farm ponds or to build these new 
ways of teaching so that you can bridge people into employment. Mm. Um, that concept has not caught on yet. And to be able to do that, the other thing you have to do is to bring combined competence and connectedness. You know, okay. in some ways, those two things in the social sector exist in isolation. You know, you have fantastic thinkers in, mm. in universities in UK and US and India and everything else who are coming up with all kinds of ideas. Yeah. But they have absolutely no connection to the people they're trying to help. Yeah, good point. And so constantly they live in their own world and everybody is trying to come up with an idea that's a little bit more complex than what the previous idea was. Mm. Mm. But the people for whom they're coming up with all these ideas there's no capacity to absorb even the simplest of those ideas. Mm. At the same time, you know, people who are connected and doing good work, uh, they don't know how to do it because they don't have the advantage of that competence. Mm. So the world has to do a couple of things. Number one, bring the competence and the connectedness together. And that's what you see in Kubli. Mm. You'll see a lot of people with, you know, IITs and IAMs and, you know, very good English. They understand the, uh, all the big things. But out of the 1,000 people that we have on our payroll, 900 of them come from the connected class. About 100 come from more the educated, highly educated class. But the hard part is to build a culture where both of them respect each other for what they know. Mm -hmm. Because if you just have the competent people, they would, they would not know what to do. Correct, yeah. If you just had the connected people, they would know how to scale or, or refine things. You know, mm -hmm. in the in the com competent world, things always get cheaper, better, and faster. Mm -hmm. In the nonprofit world, you're lucky if you can find an intervention that makes a difference. And if it does, you'll see the same video 20 years down the road. Because you're just struggling to keep that thing going. Right? Yeah, you're bang on. And so I think going from version 1.0 to 2.0 to 3.0, you know, in the for-profit world, it's survival. Mm. In the nonprofit world, if you can do the same thing, you can help more and more people. And, and essentially, you know, this uh, C.K. Prahlad was a very good friend of mine. Mm. And he wrote that book, Unfortunately, at the Bottom of the Pyramid. Correct, yeah. yeah. What I found is that if you go all the way to the bottom, there's not a lot of fortune at the bottom of the pyramid. But if you can make themselves sufficient, yeah. you can scale big time. And essentially what you do then is you elevate people from the very bottom into a free market economy. So mm -hmm. once a farmer has a farm pond, he's making a little bit more. His income has gone up. So now he can participate in the free market economy to educate his children, to get better health care, and so mm -hmm. on. So mm -hmm. you need the free market economy, but also you need interventions. Uh, and, and what we're doing there is, is jumping these people into the free market economy. Mm. And once it has enough scale and it proves itself, then mm. it can become a part of the government policy. Mm. Mm. Do you think, I mean, it's brilliant, thank you. Do you think you being an Indian who is a migrant or an NRI, non-resident Indian, having succeeded in your technology career and, you know, been successful at many levels, not just money, but also mindset and so on. Do you think you versus an equivalent of you based in India, an Indian, Indian Indian, um, do you think, I mean, I'm sure there are many Indian Indians making a massive difference as well. Don't get me wrong. But do you think there is something different there? Do you think you have some sort of a, I'm not saying advantage or disadvantage, just some sort of an, a different outlook? Uh, do you get motivated differently? Is your perseverance different because you're not necessarily always there? 
Do you think it gives you an advantage in any way? Well, I mean, the, the big advantage is, you know, it's not easy doing things in India. Yeah. So when you live in India and try to do things, you're banging your head against the wall all the time. You don't get a break. <laughs> Whereas being this far away, uh, you get to see, at the same time, you can see the country make progress. Mm. I mean, there's a, I left in 1973. So compared to 73, there's a lot more confidence. There's a lot more younger people who are really charged up. The difference between what's available there and what's available in the rest of the world is almost equal now. Mm. I would say there's probably one or two percent of the population in India, which is as competent as anybody else in the world, whether it's engineering or medicine or or literature or anything, right? Mm -hmm. Mm. All of that competence did not exist in 73. And the country is making progress. But it's easier to see when you're far away. Sure. When you're there fighting the battles every day, it's kind of hard to stay positive. Mm. But at the same time, people who live in India obviously have a lot more connectedness. They understand the problems a lot better. And so I think working together is a very powerful concept. You know, mm. you want people who live there because people who just live here wanting to make a difference will just not get there. Mm. And also things that need to be different are more obvious being far away. Mm. Mm. Beautifully put. And, and I think the, all the NRIs, doesn't matter whether they live in UK or Middle East or US, it's amazing. There's more than 20 million of them now. And each one of them has such a soft heart for India, wanting to help people who are being left behind. Mm. That is a tremendous resource. And I've never met anybody who doesn't wish well or want to help. You know, mm. uh, whether it's Akshay Patra or anything else that we do, mm. it's amazing how how welcoming people are in wanting to be a part of something where they can help people in India. Mm. And, and that's the biggest asset I think that India has now. Yeah, you're bang on. That diaspora is active and they're advocates. They're actually advocates of change and doing it. You know, they're also providing the resources and the know-how and the knowledge and the cash to, to make some of these changes happen. So and you're also, you know, what's nice is it's a two-way street now. Right, interesting. Meaning it's not just like we doing something for India. India mm. is doing a lot for these countries too. In fact, you know, Bridgespan is one of the uh, leading nonprofit consulting firms in US. Mm -hmm. And, and a, a few years ago, when they wanted to go to India, uh, I helped them get there. But when they went there, they realized that there's so much more you can learn from India in the nonprofit sector, because India does think about scale. You know, for example, Akshay Patra, feeding 2 million children every day a hot midday meal. Mm. I mean, we don't have anything like that in US. No. It's not even close to that kind of scale. No. And, and so in India, I think there is this idea that you want to bring about a systemic change, not just a little change here and there. Because it's, it's one of the places where you have huge problems, but you also have a lot of competence. And competence, freedom, and huge problems existing together mm. creates the dynamics to actually come up with social solutions that can be systemic as opposed to like working on corner cases. Mm. And also mm. making them cost effective because one of the things that you have to do to make things work well is to make them cost effective. Otherwise, they're not a problem. Correct. Whereas in UK and US, you know, whenever we come up with um, things here, 
they always get gold polished. Everything becomes so expensive yeah. that you can help people. You know, you can teach STEM, you can do this, you can do that, but you can only do 5,000 kids, 10,000 yeah. kids. And you can't really scale it to millions because it's, it's, it's so well done that it, it does a disservice. Yeah, yeah, you're bang on. And that's actually, that final point is one of my biggest learnings around farming and the food security issue that I've discussed with you before around how we have to change our mindset in the West uh, towards understanding what frugal frugal innovation actually means or affordable excellence. Uh, that's what it's called sometimes where you do have a product that doesn't have to be gold-plated and it can, it can work beautifully. It can work every single time. And it may not look as amazing. It may not have 10 buttons on it, it may have just two, but it serves the purpose. And I think we've been spoiled in the West you know, this abundance mindset has meant that we we think in a very, very different way about innovation and product and usability. So you're bang on. Uh, I'm conscious of time. I've had a wonderful uh, discussion with you. You've shared so much, so emphatically and passionately. Thank you, Desh. Um, I look forward to maybe the next book or or going back to hopefully for my next visit, this time taking uh, some troops from this end, from the UK and the government uh, and trying to do something for these startups that you've you know, got, you know, nurtured and, and incubated uh, in that part of the world. Stay in touch, please. And I'd love to see if I can support your mission, yours and Jayshree's mission in, in some way and get some guidance from you on my next mission with Diversity Economics Institute. And I've, I've learned a lot from this dialogue. Uh, before we go, uh, very quickly, some words on how the experience has been, you, uh, been for you over the last 60 minutes. How have you enjoyed the dialogue and some feedback, uh, which will help us make ourselves better as well? No, I, I think it's it's good. You know, you don't you don't make it into a canned conversation, and uh, and it's good that you you are able to probe different things that are probably in the minds of those thirty thousand people who look at this thing, mm. and also you know welcoming them to experience it, and also would welcome all your thirty thousand people to visit Hubli and, yeah. and experience it, and because. You know, social impact is not really, uh, it's a little different than the for-profit world where mm-hmm. you constantly struggle for market share. You know, in the social sector, you're just looking for impact. And, and it doesn't really matter whether that impact is created by us or by somebody else. Mm-hmm. And if there's anything we can learn from each other and create a bigger impact, mm-hmm. it's good for what all of us are trying to do. Mm-hmm. So I wish all your 30,000 people uh, um you know, a life journey where they're reinventing themselves every day and and having fun and and and, and not getting hung up with some little issue and missing out on the big thing in life. So, yeah, yeah, thank bang you. on. Yeah, absolutely right. Thank you so much. It's a real pleasure. Uh, I've really enjoyed my conversation. And uh, for those who are watching this, click on the subscribe button on the right. And we will bring Desh back one day when he's um, launched his next book or there's something game-changing again that we need to discuss with him. Desh, thank you so much. Have a wonderful day, week, and year ahead. God bless you. Take care of yourself and Jayshree, and we'll see you soon. Great. Thank you, Ash. Thank you.